welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Ru Chater. Season 2, Episode 4, with Robbie Nash. This is an absolute belter of a podcast. Um, a little bit selfish from my own perspective in the sense that I indulged in quite a lot of questions that were pertinent to my water sports career growing up. Some of you may or may not be aware that I started windsurfing at the tender age of seven. I think my dad, who was a dinghy sailor back then, went to the boat show and saw these windsurfers at Earl's Court and much to my mum's possible displeasure at the time I'm not sure I was quite young actually came home with a 10 cat a hunter windsurfing board and rig and a full wetsuit and everything you needed to go windsurfing and what then started was a fantastic journey in my life where I had this sudden sport that I fell madly in love with and all I wanted to do was windsurf and that's led me to where I am now and the jobs that I have taken on and the work that I do for various people and the company that I've built as well and along that whole path there was a gentleman by the name of Robbie Nash who was gracing the front covers of magazines winning all the competitions and seemingly living this incredibly idyllic lifestyle as one of the true true legends of the windsurfing world and obviously in more recent years he went on to become um, you know one of the godfathers of kiteboarding cementing that sport in its place and stand up paddleboarding too and now he's heavy into his um, wind wings and wing surfing um, I haven't still quite decided on a name although I'm settling with wind wings at the moment but he's always been a pioneer of these things and the chance to sit down with someone like Robbie was pretty incredible now a bit of background I've spent quite a few years working alongside him in the kite surfing industry and I've sent him emails we've chatted on the phone but I'd never actually met him in person until I went to Tarifa earlier this summer for the Nash dealer meeting and it was an opportunity that was just too good to miss so I made the effort to get over there and shake hands with one of my true heroes and it's an interesting situation to be in you know sometimes they say you should never meet your heroes because they'll let you down but Robbie was every bit the gentleman I hadn't even really expected him to be I didn't know what to expect I was just expecting this incredibly talented and successful man to shake my hand but I got so much more he's got a fantastic story I mean a lot of the things that he talks about in the early part of the podcast you know how he was becoming a, a champion at windsurfing at the tender age of 13 and traveling the world on his own is pretty mind-blowing I mean for a 13 year old kid to travel the world on their own now is a bit scary but you've got whatsapp telephones emails communication at every turn back then that just wasn't a factor and you know he pursued this dream he was ever so passionate about it doing all kinds of jobs to raise enough cash to buy his first bit of kit and it channeled his entire life and his entire career and it's probably one of the most interesting stories um, that we've had on the podcast and I really enjoyed the time that I got to spend with Robbie a little caveat he was suffering from um, a bit of a cold at the time so thanks Robbie again for giving me those 45 minutes we were also sat just outside the equipment tent and there's a little bit of background noise and it was very hot so unlike some of our hour and a half marathons that we 
do on this podcast. We kept this one fairly short because we were just sat in the sunshine, melting. And it was a very kind and generous use of his time that he afforded me. And what can I say? Meeting him, he's an absolute gentleman. There's a lovely uh, piece at the end of the podcast where he talks about what it's like to meet his fans. And I won't spoil it, but it kind of sums up Robbie in a nutshell. Absolute gentleman to talk to incredible athlete on the water someone who's got a career spanning you know what most sports people can only even dream of having half of that as a career he's absolutely nailed and i really think you'll enjoy this week's episode today i'm sat with uh, possibly one of the most intriguing beings i've ever had on my podcast which is a gentleman called robbie nash if you haven't heard of him, you've probably been living on another planet, but he is one of the foremost windsurfers back in the early days, carved a huge career for himself out of the sport, um, and ended up setting up his own company a long time ago now that has grown to become one of the biggest provider of water sports equipment in the world. And he's still very much at the forefront of that brand and you know, pushing it from the top and steering it in the right direction. And always on the cutting edge of new sports, things like stand-up paddleboarding, the new wing surfs that we're seeing around, foiling as well. Robbie's always been there, um, especially with kiting in the early days as well. Yeah. And he's on it. So I wanted to get him on the podcast and have a quick chat to him. Robbie, I know your parents are keen water sports enthusiasts, but when did you actually first jump in the ocean? Can you remember? Well, I was in it long before I can remember. My dad... Um, is from La Jolla, California. He was a lifeguard at Wind and Sea, one of the you know pretty famous surf beaches there. He was a surfer. You know, started going to Hawaii in I think '58, long before I was born. Going to the North Shore, surfing Waimea and Makaha, and you know one of the pioneer big wave riders back in the day. And uh, fortunately, moved the family to Hawaii in uh, I think early '68. So I was born in '63. So when I was a little kid and I don't have a memory like my brother who remembers everything that ever happened in his life. You know, I, my memory is spotty in the beginning, mostly from little photos of me like surfing on boards. And luckily I was raised at the beach. You know, my yep. dad was a surfer. He was a, a pioneer in the Hobie Cat days at the first Hobie 14 on Oahu at the first Hobie 16 on Oahu. Back, back when day, Hobie was big. He was five-time 14 Hobie state champion. And I think more than that in the 16. He was 1972 Hobie 16 national champion, was second in the world several times. He's you know, full-on water sport guy. So I grew up around around the water. I surfed as a kid, skimboarded, sailed. I had a Hobie 12 with my brother. And uh, that's how I got into windsurfing, was luckily meeting a couple of windsurfers at Kailua, my home beach, when we had a little Hobie 12 down there one day. And they were racing. I think you know there were only six or seven windsurfers in Hawaii at the time, and they had put out a couple of buoys and asked if we wanted to race with them, and awesome. that was my introduction at 11 years old, and uh, jumped on to, you know, I couldn't even get the sail out of the water, went tandem with Mike Horgan, you know, where I'd hold on inside the boom, and he'd let yeah. go, and I'd sail along and crash, and it just hooked me. It took a long time for me to actually be able to do it, but I'd go after school, I'd get onto the beach on weekends, and I learned by like borrowing people's boards and sailing them back up the beach for them, you know, because they'd drift down and I'd, I'd ask them, hey, you want me to sail that back up for you so you don't have to drag it? And I'd sail their board back upwind and, um, you know, pretty quickly just knew that's what I wanted to do. I still surfed and sailed and stuff, but took my life savings, worked my ass off, made paper shell necklaces, airbrush t-shirts, babysat to make money. And Whatever you could do. When I was... Uh, 
and almost 12 bought my first windsurfer for $340 brand new and uh that was it that was my trajectory just started racing locally and um won the hawaii state championships which got a free airfare to the national championships in berkeley california in 1976 we didn't even have enough windsurfers in hawaii you needed 50 boards if you had 50 or more people enter windsurfer international would give the the winner a free airfare okay so we guys were entering their dogs and <laughs> to friends and to get to get enough entries and uh, i won that and got the ticket to the nationals went to the nationals in berkeley alone you know just with a group of friends neither of my parents uh and won a ticket there to the world championships in the bahamas a couple of wow. months later so i went off to the bahamas at 13 in 1976 again alone without my parents in hindsight this is a very different time yeah i don't know how they did it there's no no cell phone it was it was crazy uh but luckily you know they let me do it and off i went and the rest is kind of history i won there in the bahamas and that gave me a free airfare to the worlds the next year in sardinia and i won there and it gave me a free airfare to the worlds in cancun mexico the year after which i won there and got a free ticket to florida (laughs) the next year and it kind of went through my snowball. amateur years, yeah, and it, you know, we, we weren't made of money. I needed those free airfares to do it. So luckily, just right place, right time, many times in a row, until the sport turned pro in 81, which is the year I graduated from high school. That was perfect time. And uh, deferred admissions to college and said, okay, I'll give this a try, see where it goes. And I'm still giving it a try and seeing where it goes. <laughs> All those years so, on. Long story for a simple question. Yeah, so. but that's great. I mean, I knew some of that history, but not all of it. And that's incredible to think that, you know, at the age of 13, you're traveling around the world on your own. You know, and I mean, even getting kit on airplanes back then wasn't. Yeah, well, the, the cool thing back then with the one design, you know, all of those years was one design windsurfer class, yeah. and they, the they provided windsurfer, yeah the it? original windsurfer Schweitzer design exactly. Yeah. So all of those years competing and all all of my first world titles were on the one design windsurfer, and you didn't travel with your gear. It was there when you got. Yeah, there. you arrived, you picked brand new gear out at the event, and you know off you went. So there was none of that. <laughs> drama that we had in the following years as professionals dragging around three four hundred pounds of equipment everywhere we went around the world yeah because the sport changed dramatically and it suddenly became you know multi-discipline not yeah. just about racing wave riding jumping you know all these kind of aspects of it when did you kind of get your first taste of you know putting foot straps on and doing jumps and getting actual airtime on a windsurfer well, we started trying to jump them right away. You know, in, in 1976, we were out of Flat Island trying to get the dagger board out of the water. Got the fin out of the water, no <laughs> foot straps. Uh, it wasn't until 1978 that we started putting foot straps on boards. We started with boogie bumps, gluing down pieces of boogie board foam in strips to kind of push your toes against. Yeah, and it went grip. went from that to the first foot straps, and that was 1978. And from then it was, you know, the board started getting shorter. We started cutting the tails off of windsurfers and then we started making custom boards. My dad was already making custom boards in the garage by um, 77. So that kind of started where the windsurfer was pretty limited and we started making custom boards in the garage to try and make them go faster and ride waves better and everything else. So. And you had a very glittering career as a pro, won pretty much everything there was to win out there. What was it like back then in those days? Because it's quite different to being a pro rider 
these days, you know, there was a whole heap of money flowing around with the big sponsors and things because windsurfing was on such a huge global scale back then. Yeah, well, it grew, you know, in the beginning, 81, 82, it was just kind of getting going. But the sport was just blowing up everywhere, Japan, all over Europe, pretty much everywhere except America. Windsurfing oh, really? got huge, yeah. America was still pretty small, which was cool because... We all kind of became famous and made money elsewhere and went back home to be nobody. Ah. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, by 83, which is the year that, 81, 82, we just had random pro events all over the world. You know, we go to individual events and, you know, really good prize money, up to 50 grand in Japan and 1981, you know, which so back then was really a lot of money, money. yeah. Of and then in 83, they formed the WSMA World Tour, which was the first unified professional world tour where you know there was a ranking for all three disciplines course racing slalom and wave performance and then an overall and that is what really set it off because there became that you know professional tour with events in like Scheveningen and La Torche and uh, San Francisco California Omaizaki Japan Silt Germany uh, and that that's when it really took off you know because it was mainstream media it was a really big thing through like 84 86, 87, 88, 89. That was really the heyday in terms of prize money, attention, big cigarette sponsors, you know, massive events in the Paris indoor, for example, in Bercy, where, you know, back then it was $250,000 total prize money, which, you know, by today's standards in our sport would still be a lot. But back then it was an awful lot more than it is today. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. It was a, it was a good time, no doubt. Did you enjoy those indoor events in Bercy, or were they a bit of a... They were like a necessary case? evil. Yeah. You know? Because, I mean, that's quite it's, different from riding in Maui to then, you know, hookeeper and then being indoors in Bercy. is pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, the first one I went to, I was packed and leaving because it was just not right, you know? Hitting a big metal ramp and trying to jump and destroying your boards and the wind was gusty and trying to ride... You know, conventional production gear just didn't really work in there. And they convinced me to stay, um, and I'm glad I, I did. You know, it was like everybody had bought their tickets. Yeah, it would have been a real letdown to just not give it a go. And we were honest, you know, got on the microphone and said, you know, we're going to do the best we can, but it's pretty tough in here. This is not the real deal, yeah. but it's cool to be here with you. Thanks for coming. You know, it's really neat to be able to be here in the middle of the city and see everybody. And the atmosphere is what made it work. You know, like during warm-up, it was basically a joke. But putting 10, 12,000 people that were that screaming. enthusiastic, <laughs> screaming, and it just created an amazing environment. And it put windsurfing to a whole new level in terms of, yeah, at 8 o'clock at night on Saturday, you can turn it on. Yeah, And, and people didn't have to go out into the middle of freaking nowhere in the cold and the rain to watch you do your thing. And from that perspective it worked and then we embraced it as such and made gear for it for the following years where we developed stuff that worked pretty well you know in that environment fresh water short little accelerations and jibes short squatty sails that only made power in the the tiny little range that the fans were sitting and you know that we used production boards to get destroyed on the metal ramp but we figured out how to actually make it work and do some you know, not as spectacular as outside, but, you know, yeah. some good stuff, enough to get the crowd going. So it was a neat a neat time in the sport. And um, there was a lot of crowds involved back then in those kind of events. Did you have any favorite events from that era that you really enjoyed going to because there was good conditions or good crowds? Or yeah, I kind of thrived 
on the, the pressure. I like the more difficult events. I like the conditions that were just cold and gnarly and and other guys had a hard time with. Like silt. silt. Yeah, I was thinking that like, might spring Like Scheveningen when, uh, when it was gnarly. We had years in Scheveningen with no wind at all, but when it was good, it was really good. Like Omaizaki, Japan, where it was just crazy windy and cold and out of control. And that's kind of what separated the men from the boys at the time. You know, when other guys couldn't even get through the shore break. Like guys that were really good at Hokipa, you know, best wave sailors in the world. And they wouldn't even get out for their heat at silt. The they just get washed down, down the beach and, you know, you didn't know how to deal with it. Being adaptable and pliable and knowing what boards worked where and what fins to use and, you know, to be able to change your stuff and your approach to the conditions on offer uh, was what I, I really enjoyed. I love the fact that everywhere was different and, you know, the best guy at Hokipa didn't have a chance. Yeah. Just like the best guy at Pozo usually didn't have a chance at Hokipa. But overall, the one that could put it all together would end up winning the, the tour. Which was the big prize in those days. Yeah, exactly. Overall world champion was a thing to have. And you had to be good in slalom racing. Yeah, and, and to put it all it together. You know, in those days, the overall was the main deal. And that was, you know, I won it in 83, 84, 85, 86, 87. And you know, after that, they stopped doing overall because things started getting really specialized. The race guys didn't wave ride. The wave guys didn't race or slalom. And uh, it just became individual titles so it was a lot less gear yeah <laughs> you know if you could focus on just slalom or just wave yeah because in the day we were really everything. really carrying a lot of stuff around i hated that aspect of it absolutely yeah, it hated quite it. tiring rocking up to the airport never knowing what you're going to get charged if you're going to oh, get on the plane yeah, just pull out that credit card cross your fingers and just just the hassle um traveling by yourself dragging all that stuff renting a car piling all that stuff on top of it, it it was taxing. I mean, it was cool. It, it was what it was, but it was not glorious. It was not rock star. It was manual labor and misery for <laughs> a lot of the time. It was only good once the competition started and you yes. actually get to ride it. One of the things you're probably most famous for in a lot of people's eyes, and whenever I was moving house recently and I dug out an old box and it had all the old VHS tapes that I used to watch over and over, and there was your infamous movie called Brit. Um, where right at the beginning you're like, check out how long these waves are. Yeah. And that movie was just, you know, an absolute head turner. How did that come about and what was the thinking behind putting that together? Uh, just wanted to showcase, you know, the spots in Hawaii where I was from and what I could do in them and what my friends could do in them. And um, at that point, you know, videos were something that people bought, you know. It, it kind of stamped stamped at the time so to say you know like this is this time yeah and you know, just like watching an old video like breakfast club or 16 candles or you know whatever the video is back in the video days that really just stamps a time in your life where you go god i remember that yeah look at the clothes and, you know the floral colors and the jackets with miami vice padded shoulders and all the things you laugh at but i kind of just wanted to establish who i was at that time and the level of windsurfing at the time and wanted to do it right with good music so went out to studios and got new up-and-coming bands which are now full-on mainstream yeah. bands you know uh and it was fun and it uh like by today's standards it's still a pretty good i was gonna serving movie the music the music's it? still good the writing's still good so i mean obviously things have progressed but it's still pretty damn 
Do you ever slip Good. it in the VHS recorder? And watch no, it's on YouTube oh, now. You know, people have downloaded it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, still, I've still got boxes of them, but uh, yeah, I've still got an old VHS player somewhere. But. Uh, it was great. I remember the classic line in there, which my brother, who I used to watch it with, I was saying to Brian Timer, actually, he used to watch the 1996 PWA windsurfing tour video heaps as well, and I was giving him some quotes, but is uh, Taco Bell still Taco Bell, looking for change. The champions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was an awesome video. I really enjoyed that, and I still, when I dig it out, I posted it, the cover of it on Instagram, and the amount of people who I didn't even know windsurfed back then, who I know through kiting now, were like, oh my God, I remember that film. It was such a, like you say, it was a real stamp on time. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that, you know, I remember I was working in the UK for Mistral and North Sales at the time. I was the northern sales rep driving around the country selling those bits of kit. And you brought out the Nash range of Mistral windsurf boards, which were, you know, hugely popular. Did you have any idea when you worked on that project that they were going to be as, as big as they were? Um, yeah, I mean, I assume so, because at, at that point we were already selling thousands of custom boards out of the Nash Hawaii custom shop in Kailua um, and they were shaped still by your dad right well they were you know we had several shapers we had Harry uh, Harold Iggy and Stevie B and Rick and Charlie Wong and I mean we were we were doing a lot of custom boards during that custom board time all hand airbrushed and it was a neat time in the sport so when that became available in a production construction that was worthy of putting our name on, which were the first good Cobra-made, you know, Thailand boards where they were full sandwich, light enough to, you know, really perform well and be comparable to a custom board. Um, we figured, yeah, let's let's do that, and it it was quite successful. We sold a lot more of those in those uh, five models than we sell today with our entire range. Wow! So, like, a lot more. Crazy, yeah, exponentially more. That's how big windsurfing was then compared to how big it is today. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, I think there's still lots of windsurfers, it's just like it seems like it's shrunk in terms of the products purchasing thing. A lot of people are still using old kit, and yeah, there's you know, you don't need new gear every year, and there are a lot less windsurfers than there used to be, yeah, you know, by a factor of a hundred, probably. You know, it's pretty crazy. And then after that, you went on and started Nash itself as a brand. Um, what was the thinking behind that? Because you've been with Mistral and Gastra for an awful long time. Well, and to set up on your own, I guess, was quite a big... Definitely not by choice. It, I didn't want to do it. Um, it was 95, 96 winter that we started Nash Sales. And it was because Gastra had been bought and sold and bought and sold several times. And it was bought and sold. And the new guys that bought it really wanted to completely restructure. They wanted to move R&D to Hong Kong. I had a really good team that I was working with doing, you know, pretty much everything for them. Out of Maui, Pete Cabrina, and Don Montague, myself. Uh, and they wanted to just kind of tear it apart. And they wanted to put in a managing director that I had worked with previously with another owner of Gastro years before. And I just said, there's just no way I'm going to do this again Go back there you know and so what was my choice i've been with them basically since my beginnings of being a pro i'm not going to go to neil pride you know I've, I've always been very loyal um and i've never moved for money you know i haven't followed the dollars as my career path has gone there's always more important things you know in the big picture that equate to a better long-term return on you know my my time so 
I said, fuck, I'm, I'm not going to stay with Gastro. I'm not going to go with Pride. What do we do? Let's let's start a sale company. And very reluctantly, it was a tough decision. I decided to do that. Just making sales. Yeah. That's it. So we sales, mass booms, bales, just right. windsurfing sales, no boards. We were still with Mistral. And we headed up all of Mistral's design and development with my dad for years. But uh, yeah, bit the bullet, started Nash Salesway just as a windsurfing sale company. And the rest is kind of history. That was 95, 96. By 97, we started dabbling in kites. Uh, by 98, we were full on into it. We went and got the license for the inflated strut technology from Bruno Lagagno, who owned the patent on it. And in 99, we, we launched our first uh, range of kite surfing equipment. Um, and that really changed the whole dynamic of, of Nash. You know, we sold a fair number of sales at that time, but we were small yeah. on the whole scope of things. Kiting was completely different. We were the first inflated kite surfing company doing, you know, decent product, four-line kites, you, you know, four-line kites and D-Power and, you know, things that really took it to a whole new level. So that changed the dynamic of the company in terms of, you know, money needed and time needed and, and reach and scope because obviously that first year in kiting, we did way, way more than we ever did in, in windsurfing sales. And it pretty rapidly grew to the point where it's like, this doesn't make sense to stay with Mistral anymore either. Let's, yeah. You know, we were doing kite boards on our own and doing a lot of those. And it's like, let's just, you know, bite the bullet and take on windsurfing boards as well, which we did. Brought my dad and Harold under the, under us and the rest is history. You know, we did that, started getting into stand-up in the early 2000s, slowly trying to convince people that there's a real market outside of Maui. 2007 with our 2008 line finally got a small line of boards into the distribution and boom that took off you know stand-up paddling brought board riding to everybody worldwide and rode that you know until it we were still riding it but it's obviously a very different animal now with SUPs being a commodity you can buy at the local flower shop and everywhere else but from a sporting standpoint obviously we're still very involved there as we are in, in windsurfing and kiting and do you, did you find that, you know, with running a business, I mean, it's not a small business, so what's it, what's it like? How involved are you on a day-to-day basis? Do you get bogged down with it all, or do you kind of distance yourself from it? Or are you fairly hands-on and enjoy that aspect? All of the above. Uh, <laughs> Depending on what know, day I'm, of the week. I'm the only shareholder. It's my money that's earned and lost, and it's painful when you lose it. And we've had a few bumps in the road over the years that... You know, I, I don't know where my first nickel went, but I know that it was painful spending it. So I've never gone for outside financing. We're competing against brands that all have massive, you know, investment leveraged financing and venture capitalists trying to build brand equity and spin it. And the environment is not easy to work in when you're basically cash based, having to be profitable and not just trying to build brand equity but sell good products to people at a, a price that works and at the end of the day being the black not the red um, so there's a lot of a lot of stress I'm super hands-on especially in R&D marketing uh, and again even on the the commercial side that's my money yeah you know it's when I earn a dollar I share it if I lose a dollar that's all me um, so it's it's tough because I'm in my head still a professional sportsman more than a businessman i have obligations to the red bull and quicksilver and you know i'm 
I'm still riding as hard as ever, and that's my priority, and the business is secondary. But keeping it secondary when there's so much at stake at this point is kind of tough some days because it's, it's not the tiny little thing that it used to be. You still got plenty of time on the water and managed to manage that? Yeah, yeah, way too much. I mean, we'd probably do way better as a business if I didn't spend so much time on the water. But that's <laughs> where my priorities are. And I'm also hands-on. I, I won't put someone else in the driver's seat so I can go play. I probably should. But uh, I'm juggling it still at yeah. this point. It seems to work up to now. Still trying to make it work. To go back to, to kiteboarding, that was a really big change in, you know, in water sports dynamic back in the day. And it was like 97, 96, 97, it kind of first came out. Were you kind of drawn to it as that something new or how did you kind of discover it and fall in Yeah, we, it? we started playing with it in the beginning. It was a novelty. It wasn't anything I took seriously because it was a downwind deal. Yeah, you couldn't go. And just like stand up, I wasn't interested in dropping off my car and doing a run. And you'd do it once in a while just for fun, but but I'm not going to do that much. And once it got to the point where you could go out at one spot, ride, and come back to that same spot, was when we went. All right, let's put some time into this. And that was Manu Berton, who was a, a windsurfer at the time, early French SUP guy riding Whippicas, put a bunch of time into making boards and finally got it that he could actually go out, ride in one place and come back to the same spot. To the same spot. And we had been doing downwinders and stuff on like my toe in jaws boards. And yeah, it worked. It was really cool. We could get little jumps and go fast, but it wasn't a real sport. And so you could drive your car down, go to a beach, go out, come back, pack up in the same spot and go home. And once that happened, we rapidly started developing and improving on the gear, which didn't take long because it was super archaic stuff back then. And uh, that's when it became fun, going upwind, jumping. And for me, the attraction was flying. I could jump on flat water. It turned that waiting for wind, windsurfing, waiting for good conditions to have fun into frick. When it's not good enough to windsurf, I'm out there flying. And that was that was it. Real yeah, it was all about, it wasn't wave riding. It was just going and jumping. I loved getting air. And how soon did the safety aspect come into the development? You were giving a chat earlier and you were talking about how back in the day it was like... It, it wasn't was such a crazy thing to do. It was so dangerous. You know, it was, what it was gradual. Things. I mean, the very first kite we, we made was substantially safer than what was out there before. Going from two lines to four already made a huge difference. The amount of control you had over where the kite was going to go and when it was going to go there. Adding the, the D-power the trim line, the chicken loop, made it massively safer as well. And then adding the quick release, our patented push-away system to the chicken loop is when it went to a whole new level because up until then you had to actually power up the kite to unhook from the harness. So if you were in an emergency situation, yeah, you could depower to a certain point, but if that wasn't enough, you had to then sheet all the way in to unhook. unhook. So with our push-away system... You know, as long as you could react and were smart enough to let go of that bar and release, you were always going to be safe. Whether your brain worked that way and would let you let go and release was another thing. People would always often go, I got it, I got it, <laughs> I got him, by then it's too late. Um, but that was a massive step when we did the, the push away chicken loop. And then, of course, since then, it's continued to get better and better as the kites have gotten more depower, more range of control through the bar feel, and, and so on to the point now where it's really accessible.
it makes a difference these days. A lot of people who've only just learned, you know, in the last two, three years, they sort of think, oh, I'm, I'm an old hand at this. But actually, they've just been riding on so many people with so much depower. So and, many uh, people that kite today, the vast majority would yeah. not not appreciate the hardship survived but. those early days <laughs> yeah. no. it's funny to look back on it and then when SUP came along you mentioned you were pushing that quite hard early have you always been sort of drawn to these new sports you know coming from sort of a surfing background into windsurfing and then seeing kiting and stand up are you kind of one you know, of these guys that likes trying something new not usually you know I'm, I'm uh i'm not the guy that's always experimenting on my gear trying to you know like in the world cup i'd use my old gear until it was absolutely tattered or just not competitive anymore i hated like i wasn't the guy that was constantly out testing new stuff you know i like that good old pair of shoes that you, know you wear it until it's freaking dead and I'm kind of that way with my approach to gear even now. It's just been through circumstance and the joy and love of riding wind and water and waves that it's gone this way. I was never the the guy trying the new thing first. But as soon as I saw potential, I was the guy that got in there and with a team of smart people made it really work. Uh, so, you know, we're out doing what we do and loving it and trying to do it as well as we can, not looking see for the something. next best thing. Yeah, and I see new things all the time. We go, nope, nope, happen. nope. And once in a while, one comes along and you go, there's potential there. Let's give it a taste. And if the taste is good, you really look at it more closely. And luckily, I've been able to do that several times. Yeah. Even in the right time, right place at the right time. Pick the right sport. Many times right over it have helped launch several different sports now as a result. So it's been good for me personally. It's been fun. It's been great for the brand. It's kind of reinvented myself and allowed my professional career to continue through several decades. You know, if all I did is windsurf still, I'd be a very different athlete than I am today with the arsenal of, you know, different sports under my belt that I can pull out on any given day and go work with. Do you enjoy the learning process in those new sports? Is that yeah. something that you enjoy? Love the challenge. It's like being a kid, you know. I, I want to get good at it. I don't do things that I don't think I'm going to be able to master. I don't want to be a kook at anything. <laughs> um, but, yeah, being a kid, you know, not having to grow up and stop falling down and brushing yourself off and trying it again. So it keeps you young. So I love that part of it. And luckily our medium is really safe. If I was a motocross freestyle guy or <laughs> BMX rider or a skateboarder, I'd be a freaking wreck by now. But I've been falling in water my whole life, so pretty lucky. Um, I was going to start talking about wing surfers, but seeing as you mentioned the uh, injuries, have you had any bad injuries in your career or have you been quite lucky? Not until really recently. Three years ago, I broke my pelvis in a kite chute. just landed wrong. One leg went one way on the water, the other went the other way, and I did a, an open book fracture of my pelvis so really bad almost bled to death out of the water for basically six months first real injury of my entire career and then pretty much exactly a year later once that was totally healed i kind of did the same thing kite surfing again and landed wrong and just exploded on landing and did all the metatarsals in my right foot and that took even longer to heal than the pelvis did so two in a row kind of backed off on the Craziness. Big, you know, lit kiting, um, but still do everything else full on. But yeah, those are my only two real bad injuries. That's really lucky for a man that spent so much time in the ocean and yeah. in some, you know, incredible conditions as well. I remember I had a poster of you on my wall back in the day. 
which was the Quicksilver Men Who Ride Mountains yeah. windsurfing shot at Jaws, and I remember looking at that. So it's not like you've been taking it easy all these years and not yeah. putting yourself in dangerous situations. So to yeah, come water up, is usually pretty forgiving, but when you come down from really high and land on it really fast, it can be pretty hard. Yeah. And so windsurfing is the new thing that you're very passionate about, and you did an excellent chat on it earlier. What's what's drawn you to that, and why do you think it's suddenly blown up now? It seems like everyone's got some kind of device that is going to answer this. Yeah, well, they will. I mean, within a week of my Instagram post, it was like every kite brand was on it, making prototypes. I was just opening the door for them again, like I did with kiting and so. SUP. And <laughs> it's all good, you know. Whatever gets people out on the water, and I don't care if as long as we can, you know get some out there as well i'm fine to share the love but it's fun it's, it's just another way to enjoy wind and and water in a new three-dimensional really simple way you know, i think everything has its time clearly that's nothing new um but it's time is right especially with sup and foils you know it'll it'll add an element to all those people that bought sups to be able to you know, enjoy something new and bring them into the realm of wind that a lot of them have never really played in before. Maybe bring new people to kiting and windsurfing as a result. Uh, and then on the foiling side for us, uh, it's just super fun, you know, combining something that simple. No lines and bars and simplicity for me is, is the attraction. And uh, just trying to, again, get good at something new. Yeah, you know it's it was difficult in the beginning, but a real fast learning curve, and and that's fun. You know? When you look back at sports like kiting and sap when they first started, you know they were very basic levels of the sport. Do you think we're going to see windsurf explode into some crazy dimension that we haven't even thought of yet? Yeah, I mean you're limited to a certain degree because of the, the you know size and what you can do with it but it's definitely going to advance. I hope not too quick, because like I said in the presentation today, the beauty is in the simplicity. And the race to make it more complicated is what's going to, at the end of the day, mess it up, just like it has windsurfing and so many other things. So the longer we can keep it simple, stupid, uh, the better it is. Yeah. But, I mean, we're already. I've got all, all kinds of ideas for what I would do next. But I'm up there. And I want to make sure I don't race there too quickly yep. and ruin the fun for where the entry other people will be where I'm at now, you know, over the next year or so. So, unfortunately, other people will do that because that's just the nature of the beast, especially with some of the brands that we compete against. They're going to, you know, say, this is better. If this is better. That's good. You know, and it's like, shh, more is not better. And more complicated is not better, and faster is not better, and heavier is not better. You know, there's just, there's, again, beauty and simplicity. But uh, in a competitive marketplace, that message get lost, gets lost pretty quick. And your foil program now is huge. Like, you've got a vast range of hydrofoils for using with all kinds of different crafts. Do you think it's the hydrofoil that's really brought all these sort of sports together at this time and made these things possible? Well, it's made that aspect of it possible. Like, you know, for us, the foiling is is awesome. It's, it's making windsurfing fun in accessible conditions again. It doesn't need to be 20 knots to have fun on a windsurfer anymore. You can go out with 12 knots and fly around and have an absolute blast. Same thing with kiting, kite foiling. for Especially for a lot of those guys that have been kiting for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years even that... It, 
you know, they've jumped, they've, you know, done it all. They get a little bored and there's something new to play with. They can go mow the lawn, technically, you yeah. know, go back and forth, something new. It's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that feeling of flying above the water is engaging and fun, even just going back and forth, as it is on a windsurfer, as it is surfing on a swell. You know, it's not like getting barreled. But how many guys can actually go out in a crowded break and surf really good waves and actually get more than one wave an hour? Where on a foil, you can go ride that crappy wave over there that nobody's on and get kind of that same feeling, just gliding across the water and connecting turns. And that's where the the attraction is, just enjoying the water and, and waves and wind in a different way. Awesome. And you've always been famous for your love of petrol and cars. And there's been a few infamous images of various craft that you've rocked up to the beach in Pyre on. Um, what are you driving at the moment? And what's your where did that passion for motorsports and motorcars come from? I just like I like cars, new, old, fast, slow, different. Yeah. Um, did you once have a Hertz that you used to? Yeah, a 1963 Cadillac Hearse, a Eureka Cadillac Hearse that I hot routed out. I sold that in 2012. Just couldn't take care of it anymore. It was I didn't want it to rust away on Maui, so I sent it to a guy in Canada. Um, I've got seven cars at the moment. They're just kind of a crazy collection of, you know, nothing expensive, nothing just fun and different. Like a little kid's collection of cars is what I have. You know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's not investment status. It's not like, oh, look at that classic. It's, I have really cool cars that look like they'd be expensive that don't cost much. And I do most of the work myself. So I've got my giant truck, yeah. uh, my international Terrastar. That is a pretty expensive car in the whole scope of things. But I wanted to have that beast for to be ready for the apocalypse kind of thing. <laughs> that will go anywhere, anytime. And I actually don't even drive it much because Maui's gotten so crowded. I mean, literally in the last few years, I'm thinking of selling it. But we'll see. And I've got uh, my daily driver was a little tiny Chevy Sonic. You know, a little economy car. I finally gave in and traded that for a minivan. I have a, a Chrysler Pacifica minivan, like a housewife. Great car for just carrying my daughter and her friends, carrying my gear. The seats go into the floor so you can reconfigure it and carry whatever gear I want. That's kind of my daily driver. And then I've got my Evans, that yellow race car that I've had. Phew, it's 1991, so I've had that thing wow. for a long time now. It's still only got like 5,000 miles on it. Kind of a, that timeless supercar sort of uh, car. I've got my 1977 911 Slant that blue, iris blue US 1111 Porsche that I've had now for over 30 years. I've got a, a 1949 Studebaker pickup truck, nice. black, lowered, 383 Chrysler big block engine. Um, I've got a 1957 Volkswagen Bug, hot rod, lowered, cool. narrowed beam, big motor, baby window, you know, just everyone when I was in high school had hot bugs. And so like, now I've got a hot bug too. Do you find that's Um, a way for you to kind of relax away from the ocean? Yeah, it's like the polar opposite. It's like, you know, obviously kite surfing, windsurfing, surf wings, everything, it's your job, you know, and while you love it and you're passionate about it, it's often nice to have something that takes you away from that. Yeah, I just, I like car culture. I like, you know, I just like to wash them. Like I have a 1967 Volkswagen split window bus. You know, like the classic surf bus, but mine's, you know, lowered and blacked out windows and whatnot. I like to just clean it. I'll, <laughs> I'll take it out of the tent. I'll clean it and I'll put it back. 
and not even drive it. I'm there's not just a happy. yeah. There's just it's not. I don't do it to show off. It's not like I go Never to car shows. I I don't drive through town with my arm out the window. All my cars have black windows, so you can't even see me in there. It's a, it's just a personal thing. I I like them, uh, even though I really don't drive most of them much. I just like to play with them. I get them and I customize them and I, you know, play with the suspension, play with the engine, and put on running lights and da da da, and then you know, put on new wheels and tires. And I like that aspect of it yeah it's and not then so much I, the driving it's yeah the and then i park it and every once in a while i go out and drive it or you know drive to peggy sue's diner on the other side of the island and have a burger and then drive home and put it in the garage again um but yeah it's not not a show-off thing it's not like hey i'm pulling up to hokeepa and honking my horn so people <laughs> see me i'm not jacking off it's just i like cars and luckily again they're i'm in a situation where i can have them and none of them are, are crazy expensive like i I go out of my way to find a classical car that I'm looking for on the mainland, you know, six months looking for it, find one that works, bring it back, and then make it look super cool. Yeah. But it's, you know, under 20 grand. Yeah. And it looks like and a $80,000 car. It look that good. Exactly. That's awesome. And one last question I was going to ask you about. It's pretty hot out here, and thank you for spending this much time chatting. But you've been famous as Robbie Nash and probably one of the most famous names in water sports for yeah. such a long time now. How do you deal with that? on a day-to-day basis you know because it's it, it does it get tiring in the early days was it quite not um you know quite a sort of exciting time when you're like wow i've just been to japan and they know my name and they're screaming out and they want my autograph and then after 30 years does it go god dear it's still happening what's it like no i mean it's it's different for me I'm, I'm still from sports that are pretty under the radar you know it's a pretty select demographic of people that know who i am and so you can walk through an airport without getting yeah you know just people come oh how are you i love it you know it actually it makes me especially now i've i've been most of my career really focusing on looking forward and not looking back and i'm finally maybe at that age where i am kind of proud of what i've been able to accomplish and the fact that i'm still there i'm not like yeah back 20 years ago i mean i'm still currently there in all the sports i do and at 56, I'm pretty stoked with that. I might not have the exact level that I had at my prime, but I'm not that far behind it, and I'm still relevant. I have, I have fans that met me like 40 years ago, and then I get little 12-year-old kids coming up wanting my autograph. That's cool, the fact that it bridges generations, and it's not just, yeah, I knew you back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. I'd still be stoked, but I like the fact that I'm still current and I've had a good impact on people's lives it's never been like a nuisance i've never been famous enough that you know it's given me a big head and i shied away from it. it's always appreciated it's like wow thank you so much because that's what's allowed me to do this for a living for this whole time so i've always been super conscious and aware of how lucky i am and the only way anyone's going to ever pay me to do this is if people like what i do so it's a reflection that man it's pretty cool i've done something good with my life that these people are are stoked so i like it you know i'm not out there looking for it yeah you know i'm not claiming walking down to the beach and holding my arms in the air and saying look at me here i am i try to be humble and and yeah and at the same time treat everybody with respect i'm no better than anybody else i'm just way luckier than a lot of people i know how hard most people work for their money and I've never worked the day in my life, really. So 
well, gotta appreciate what that beyond the, beyond the I'm business sure you work pretty hard but you know, yeah but it's different it doesn't feel like work it's, it's different you know i've never had a paycheck from somebody else beyond a sponsorship dollar but those sponsors aren't telling me what to do when i wake up in the morning i mean that's hard a guy that works freaking flipping hamburgers at mcdonald's for minimum wage for eight hours on his feet day after day after day that is hard work what i do is not hard work so and you you know you're a master of all these sports what if you could only do one for the rest of your life which one would you pick depends what conditions i'm given where i am <laughs> you know i hate to pick one sport and then you stick me off somewhere with no wind or no waves. well where's your favorite spot if you could spend spend one place the rest of your life with one sport what would you choose and where would it be i don't know you know if i had to pick one i'd probably pick you know, if I was stuck on Maui, I'd probably pick windsurfing. There's still not much better than going out to Hokipa and wave sailing. Still I'm still pretty house. damn good at it. Uh, it never gets boring, never gets old. No two days are the same. It's something you can do. You know, my elbows get pretty tired, but otherwise I think I could do that for an awfully long time. Um, so, yeah, probably back to, the, back to the roots. Back to the roots. It's nice not to have to choose, but if I had to, I'd probably do that awesome robbie thanks very much indeed for your time yeah thank you That's been pleasure fantastic awesome there we have it robbie nash what a legend that's probably one of my favorite ones so far and there have been some amazing amazing listens over the last year or so as ever please give these a like and a share on social media tell your friends about them spread the word i've been getting some amazing feedback both on the beaches and through social media and a special mention to martin panther who took the time to message me directly on instagram and share a little bit of his fascinating story and saying how much he'd enjoyed listening to these so thanks martin that's very inspirational indeed any feedback is always welcome both good and bad and i really hope you have a fantastic week Until next time, you've been listening to me, Rue Chater, and the Intriguing Beings podcast.